Hey, my name is Steve Wall, and I'm the campus pastor at our Carmel campus. For those of you who are new or if you're visiting, we are one church in two locations, and we've got this campus here, and we've got one in Carmel. And I generally preach at that one, but I'm glad to be with you for the second week in a row. It's uh, my privilege, not yours. And so uh, we're going to continue in this series. If you have your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9. We're going to kind of skip around a lot. We've got a uh, kind of a long story to tell. I'll do my best to tell it in the time that I've been given. But uh, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to spend a lot of time. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this on the floor around you. And it's page 765 in this Bible, 765. Uh, how many of you, if I were to say the name Chuck Colson, how many of you know who I'm talking about? Raise your hand. About half the room. Okay. So Chuck Colson was born in 1931 in Boston, Massachusetts. He attended Brown University, good old East Coast liberal arts school, and then joined the Marine Corps after that. When he got out of the Marine Corps, he went back to law school at George Washington University, got his law degree, and he started working on the staff of Massachusetts Senator uh, Leverett Saltonstall. Uh, and it was when he was working on Senator Saltonstall's uh, staff that he got the opportunity to meet the then Vice President of the United States, a man by the name of Richard Nixon. Uh, Nixon captured his attention. He was, he was a little bit... Um, Maybe you would say today he had a man crush on Nixon, but he was, he was kind of, uh, he was, he was uh, anyway, he, he admired him very much. And so uh, after Nixon lost the presidency, he ran for president in 1960, lost the election, and Ch Chuck Colson wrote an article about how he felt Nixon could still win the presidency. Now, this would have been very unusual for somebody to lose the election and then come back and win again, but Colson thought Nixon could do it. And Nixon was so taken by this idea, as I think most of us are when somebody pays us that kind of compliment, uh, he was so taken by this idea that he asked Chuck Colson to join his campaign staff for the 1968 election when he ran for office again. Of course, you know that uh, Richard Nixon won, and uh, Chuck Colson got to go to work for the president. And while he worked for the president, he gained a reputation as the guy who would do things that others were unwilling to do. He was that guy. Some people called him a loose cannon. Other people called him the hatchet man for the president. Uh, That's the kind of guy that Chuck Colson was. He actually told the president's staff one time, I would walk over my own grandmother to win this election. Nice guy, right? Um, but then Watergate happened. Some men that were uh, on President Nixon's staff were accused of and then convicted of breaking into Democratic headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. And while Colson didn't have a direct role in the break-in, he did hire the guys that did. And so at the same time, though, there was something else happened in Chuck Colson's life. He had started meeting with this guy uh, by the name of Tom Phillips. Now, Tom uh, Phillips was the, C was the CEO of Raytheon. Raytheon is a big defense contractor, had a lot of ties with the government. But Tom Phillips was a Christian. And as he was meeting with Chuck Colson, he, had him, he started reading passages from this book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And they captured... Colson's attention, and so he started reading this book, and through mere Christianity and through uh, these meetings with Tom Phillips, Chuck Colson, in the midst of everything swirling around with Watergate, became a Christian. Now, there was an issue with that, with his newfound faith, and that's that uh, Chuck Colson hadn't been accused or ch uh, charged with anything yet, but he felt guilty about the role that he played and decided that he wanted to fess up to his role in Watergate, but they hadn't charged him with anything. So he had to go, because of his conscience now being a Christian, he had to go to the prosecutors and find an obscure uh, law that was broken and give them that charge. And then the prosecutors charged him with that, and then he pled guilty because of his conscience being a Christian. Now, uh, one of the things that happened 
when the news started to leak of Chuck Colson's conversion to Christianity is the world was pretty skeptical. The media mocked him. Uh, Even other Christians in Washington, including some congressmen and senators, doubted that this guy, the president's hatchet man, could actually become a follower of Jesus. But what confirmed it for many was when he stopped fighting those charges and actually pled guilty against the advice of his attorney. And he served seven months in prison before being released for good behavior. Well, Colson was so moved by what he saw in prison that he dedicated the rest of his life to starting, uh, founding a ministry called Prison Fellowship. It's now the largest prison ministry in the world. Uh, Through that ministry that Chuck Colson started, 26,000 inmates a month now attend Prison Fellowship classes while incarcerated. And over 300,000 children last year whose parents, mothers, or fathers are in prison received Christmas gifts through the Prison Fellowship Angel Tree Project last year. And all this from a man who was famous for being the president's hatchet man. Well, uh, we're continuing in our series today called Humans of the Bible. We're looking at various people from the Bible, from the New Testament and the Old Testament, and helping to understand that these are real humans, that they're not characters in a storybook. They're real people, and they have stories, and their stories can help inform our stories. And the guy that I want to talk about today uh, shares a similar story with Chuck Colson, even though he predates him by oh, 2,000 years or so. Uh, It's a man that we first meet in Scripture as a guy named Saul, and we later know as the Apostle Paul. And he's got a long story, and we won't be able to cover the whole thing today, but we want to start at the beginning, and where he really started his career was he was the hatchet man uh, for the Jewish ruling council. But before we hear his backstory, let's talk about why Paul is such a pivotal person in the history of Christianity. He planted several churches around Europe and Asia Minor. He was really one of the early church planters outside of Jerusalem. So there were lots of churches going on in Jerusalem, but Paul was one of the first guys to go out and plant churches in other parts of the world, and really one of the most prolific church planters outside of Jerusalem in this age right after Jesus, an age that scholars call the apostolic era. Uh, He wrote about a half of what we now have as the New Testament. If you look through your New Testament, uh, 13 of the 27 books are attributed to Paul's authorship. These are books like Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And so if you look in those books, if you know what's contained in those, you know that much of our modern day theology, uh, what we think and believe about salvation and transformation and justification and church government and spiritual gifts and many other issues come from Paul's writings. He's so influential that Paul is sometimes called the second founder of Christianity after Jesus. Now, how can a guy like that come from a history of being the guy who was the hatchet man for the Jewish ruling council? You know, it wasn't always that way with Paul. You may know the the man that we know as the Apostle Paul had a pretty rocky start in Scripture. So when uh, Josh Tandy was here a couple weeks ago, he talked about Stephen. If you were here for that, you probably remember the story of Stephen. Stephen was uh, one of the apostles. He became really the first deacon in the church. He got put in charge of a food program. He spoke out boldly for his faith, and because he spoke out boldly, he was stoned to death. Uh, Well, the first place we meet Saul is at that stoning of Stephen in Acts 8.1. It says this, and Saul approved of their killing him. This is the guy who's going to become one of the pillars of our faith, is they're watching uh, the Jewish people kill one of the first Christians. Now, what on earth could possibly drive someone who started his career as an enemy of the church 
what could turn him into one of the most influential Christians in history? I would say nothing. Nothing on earth could make that happen. So let's start Saul's story near the beginning, and then we'll see what happens. Acts 9 is where we'll begin today. Acts 9.1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Well, that's a pretty inauspicious start to our story, isn't it? That's the reputation that he had. He was breathing out murderous threats. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they called Christians at the time. They weren't known as Christians yet. They were known as people of the way because Jesus said he was so known for saying, I am the way and the truth and the life that the people who followed him became known as the way. If he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so I want you to see the zeal in Paul's work here. I want you to see just the ambition that he has for his work. Uh, What's happened is that the church in Jerusalem is being persecuted. And so many of the uh, Christians, people in the way, are moving away from Jerusalem. They're scattering to various parts of the known world. And uh, Paul, Saul, is saying... It's not enough that we get rid of all the Christians here in Jerusalem. We want to make sure that this thing doesn't spread. And so uh, just for um, the sake, so you kind of know how ambitious this is, Damascus is 130 miles from Jerusalem. Even today, it's a five-hour drive by car from if you wanted to go into Syria, that is, uh, which you probably don't right now. But if you wanted to go from Jerusalem to Syria and you could cross the border, it's a five-hour drive. So you can imagine at this time where they're walking everywhere, this is uh, quite a long thing. And nobody's asked Saul to do this. It's not like the ruling council came to him and said, hey, uh, Saul, why don't you go track those guys down? He, he wanted to make sure. He came to the ruling council with his idea, I'm going to go to Damascus and see if there's any people there from the way. And if so, I'm going to bring them back here and put them in prison. He's the instigator of this whole thing. That's right, important to remember. That's going to be important later as we see his story. Verse 3, Acts 9, 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who are you are persecuting, he replied. Now, Saul would have probably argued that he wasn't persecuting Jesus, He was persecuting the followers of Jesus. But Jesus says, hey, if you touch my people, you touch me. This is is the way Jesus works. And this still works this way today, by the way. Uh, You touch one of Jesus' people, you touch Jesus. And Jesus is going to come up and defend you, right? So this is is the way that that, that Saul is um, confronted by Jesus. This bright light shines. He falls to the ground. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And then, and then he goes on, verse 6. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. Now, I want you to see the obedience in Paul here. Paul could have chosen to run away. And so many of us would, when, when we don't understand why something is happening, when we, our circumstances suddenly turn bad or dire, when, that's when we're at the most risk of disobeying God or unfollowing God, if you will. Now, think about this honestly now. If you're suddenly struck blind, you're more likely to obey God or you're less likely to obey God? I think for most of us, we'd say we're more likely to run away. But for, for Paul, it caused him, it drove him to obedience. 
Now, this is not the only time that happened either, uh, that, that Saul had an encounter like this where he was uh, driven to his knees. He uh, faced a lot of hardship in his life. One of the things, uh, one of the keys to understanding Paul is to see that that hard-headedness that he had before he ever became a Christian um, stayed with him throughout his life. It's the same thing that God is going to use in making him persistent in his obedience. Uh, Paul faced a lot of hardship, and almost all of it came about as a result of his following Jesus. He talks about this in one of his later letters, 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, He says this. He's writing to this church in Corinth that he he helped found, and he says this. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. You should know that the Jewish people thought that to flog someone 40 times was humiliating, so they wouldn't do that uh, to a Jewish person. And so they would flog them 39 times because that was much better, right? And so uh, Paul got that five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Uh, Remember, that's how Stephen died. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He says, who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. I've heard it said that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Maybe you've heard that saying before too, right? The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And while there's so much truth to that, I mean, for your eternity, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. You know, for your soul, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. But when I hear that, I often misunderstand it to say that if we're following God's will, that we won't face troubles that we won't face hardships. But who was more in the center of God's will than Paul when he was carrying out the mission that God called him to, right? But for Paul, following Christ caused him more hardships than he ever had back when he was persecuting Christians. Wow, thanks for the encouragement, Steve. (laughs) I'm just being honest with you. Even with Jesus, life isn't always a bed of roses. In Paul's case, though, I just want you to see that every hardship, every trouble that he encountered drove him closer to God not further away. And it's sometimes different with us. Sometimes when we face hardships in our lives, we, we stop praying. We're not sure that God's listening. We stop reading the Bible because we don't know if it's really true anymore. We stop going to church. We, we, we step away from God. But Paul always took comfort in the words of Jesus that he had overcome the world. And look what else happened to Paul. I love this. This is my favorite story about Paul. Uh, And he said, in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Dude is like Jason Bourne. It's like, can you imagine the governor closes off the entire city? Like, don't let that guy out no matter what you do. But somehow Paul befriends somebody in the city and he gets into their house and their house happens to be on the wall and they've got a window that faces out the city and they're willing to take Paul in and lower him down a basket on a rope. Are you kidding me? This is how I want my story to end, by the way. Now, something we need to think about, okay? In his early years, Paul thought that what he was doing when he was persecuting Christians, when he was chasing them down in Damascus and when he was approving of their stoning, Paul thought what he was doing was on behalf of God. Like that he was doing God a favor, but once he's 
corrected, and once he's confronted by Jesus, he leaves his old way of life and starts pursuing this new way of life that God has for him. But it wasn't until he personally encountered Jesus that his life changed dramatically. Right? And Paul's never going to forget this old way of life. We're going to see that in a minute. But, but Paul realizes what happened to him in his life served to change his life dramatically. I've heard it said that an encounter with Jesus is a bit like an encounter with a dump truck. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. Um, I just want you to imagine that Kevin was up here giving the announcements a few minutes ago, and uh, I wasn't in the room yet. Just imagine that I was late for service, okay? And Kevin's up here, and he's getting nervous because he knows he's going to have to preach, and he hasn't seen my message yet, and he doesn't know what he's supposed to talk about. And so he's wondering, how am I going to delay? How am I going to make this interesting for people? How am I going to hold their attention, which you all know Kevin can do. Did you know that Kevin is an incredible ballroom dancer, by the way? You should ask him about that sometime. Um, Ask him to demonstrate for you. Uh, But Kevin is nervous because I'm not in the room. And all of a sudden, just as the Spring Hill video is ending, I burst in the back doors. And I run up to the stage. And I get up here just in time. And I'm doing this. I'm like, (sighs) 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 and Kevin's like, what's wrong? And I go, so I was on my way here. And um, I got a flat tire. And so I stopped by the side of the road, and it was a busy highway, and cars are going back and forth. But, like, I stopped, and I, I took the tire off, and I set it aside, and then I got my spare. And I got ready to put it on, and it fell out in the road. And I reached out in the road to get my spare, and all of a sudden, there was a dump truck coming at me 55 miles an hour. And boom, it hit me right in the face, and I fell back on the floor. But then I got up, and I put my tire on, and I came to work. You'd all be like, dude is lying. What's he... What's he covering up? Or maybe he's crazy. He's, he's insane. That didn't really happen. Why? Because you can't have an encounter with a dump truck and not be changed in some way, right? Encounter with Jesus is the same way. You can't have a real encounter with the real Jesus and come out the same on the other side. And Paul realizes that. And this is where he, tells, he keeps telling this on his, in his story. You'll see that. Now, just to summarize what happens next, we won't go through the whole rest of the story. But, but God says, Paul, I want you to, Saul, I want you to go to this house. And there you're going to meet a man named Ananias. He's going to be looking for you, and he'll welcome you there. And so Paul goes to this house. And then God comes to Ananias, and he goes, hey, Ananias, I want you to go to this house. It's on State Street. Straight Street, it's called. It's on Straight Street. Go to this house on Straight Street. And there you're going to meet a man named Saul. I want you to go looking for Saul. And Ananias is like, uh, I think Saul's coming looking for me, actually. I don't think I have to look for him. He's coming to try to take me down. And God's like, no, no. I want you to go find him because he's going to be my chosen instrument to go take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles are the non-Jewish people. This is the rest of the world. So right now in this world, you've got the Jewish people who are mostly centered around Jerusalem, and then you've got everybody else as a Gentile. He said, Saul is going to be my chosen instrument to take the good news to the Gentiles. Now, there's two things. First of all, Ananias is probably a little skeptical that somebody like Saul has actually changed, right? There's a, there's a healthy skepticism, I think. And we'll see that in the rest of the believers here in a minute. But secondly, not a lot of the Jews wanted the good news to go to the Gentiles. They were, they, they were a set-apart people. They were a different people. And so to think that Ananias, but Ananias, fortunately, is obedient. And so he goes to the house on Straight Street, and there he meets Saul, and he lays hands on him. And Saul is healed. He's able to see again. The Bible says that scales fall off his eyes. And then, he, and then he's... Uh, he eats something because you're not you when you're hungry, right? And so he's got to eat something, and then he's baptized. And then here's what happens next in Acts 9:19. Saul spent, spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, 
he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now remember, Jesus confronts him. Why are you persecuting me? And then he has this encounter with Jesus, and it says he went at once, began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him were astonished and asked, uh, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief of priests? In other words, there's this skepticism. There's this skepticism in the people. And I think we're prone to skepticism when we hear that somebody has drastically changed their life. Why? We know because we know that people can't change their lives. But those of us whose lives have been changed know that God can change our lives, that God can change anybody's life. So there's a little bit of skepticism here. And it says, but yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So this guy who just a few days or a few weeks ago is persecuting Christians, is uh, approving of having them killed. He's going to Damascus to chase them down. He ends up in Damascus preaching about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the Messiah. Now, this is a good time, I think, to talk about the name. We know Paul by two names, Saul and Paul. And uh, sometimes, maybe you've heard this, that God changed Saul's name to Paul. But that's not exactly what happened. Here's what happened. Uh, Paul had a unique standing in the world in that he was a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen. And so he was a Jew, which meant that he spoke Aramaic and wrote in Hebrew. The Old Testament was all in Hebrew. But he was a Roman citizen, and the kind of the world language at the time was Greek. And so anybody who had been a Jew and a, uh, a Roman citizen would have had two names. They would have had their Greek name. In this case, his name was Paul, and their Hebrew name. Saul, probably named after King Saul from the Old Testament. And so uh, what happened was, uh, as Paul was living in that culture among the Jews, and he was a Pharisee, which means he was a teacher of the law, he was, uh, as we'll see in a minute, he was uh, very highly advanced in Jewish studies and Jewish culture. He would have gone by the name Saul, and everybody would have known him, all of his friends would have known him by that, because he was a Jew, and they would have known King Saul, and they would have called him by that. But the rest of the world would have called him Paul. Now, the, the, uh, mo most of the world uh, would have spoken Greek, at least as far as the most educated people. It was kind of the world language. It was the way that cultures could uh, communicate with one another. It's kind of like today. If you travel much internationally, you'll notice that in almost any culture where you are, the most educated people speak English. Why? Because Americans speak it? No, but because it's kind of become the global language, right? It's the way we communicate across cultures. Well, Greek was that way. So if you were a Roman citizen and a, a Hebrew, you would have had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. Paul had the name Saul as his Hebrew name and his Greek name Paul. And when he became the chosen instrument to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that's to everybody who's not a Jew, he took on his Greek name to make it more palatable to the rest of the world. Now, he talks about this in a way in uh, 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in his blessings. This is, this is really key too. Paul says that when we share the gospel, when we help people find Christ, we share in those blessings. So let me ask you this, Christians. What are you willing to do to make sure that people who don't know Christ can hear the gospel from you? You know, Paul said, I'm, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means some might be saved. Are, are you 
willing to invest in others, to invest your time and your resources in other people? Are you willing to tell your story? Are you willing to share the gospel? Do you even know how to share the gospel, to share the good news? Uh, are you willing to change your priorities, to change your life, to change how you spend your money? Are you willing to face persecution? That's what, what Paul had to do. Are you willing to have people think you're crazy? That's the biggest risk right now in our culture, I think, is people think we're crazy. You become a Jesus freak, right? And all of a sudden, people think you're crazy. They think your priorities are misplaced. I got to tell you, in 100 years, it's not going to matter what people think. That, that I firmly believe that one day when we come face-to-face -face with Jesus, by the way, did you know we're all going to come face-to-face -face with Jesus someday? Whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to come face-to-face -face with Jesus. And one of the questions that we're going to have to answer is, what did you do to help others come to know me? Paul became all things to all people so that by any means necessary, some could be saved from destruction. So what I want to do is I want to look and learn from how he does this. We'll watch how he uses this background, which is not a great start, but he uses that to help win people to Jesus. And then we'll talk about what we can learn from Paul's story. I just want to show you one example in Galatians 1 where Paul uses his story. Uh, there are several examples of this in Scripture, but uh, this is one great example from Galatians 1 where Paul uses his story to help instruct and teach the church. He says, for you've heard, Galatians 1.13, for you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God. He's writing to the church of God. He says, you probably heard, I used to persecute the church. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age for my people and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. He's, he's not just, he's not ashamed of his past because he knows it's part of his story. Now, here's the thing about Paul. Uh, we only see how he writes it. We don't get to hear him actually say this, but we know from his writings that Paul has a really good sense of humor. So I sometimes wonder when he told people this, if he didn't say it a little more like Clint Eastwood like. You know, like, um, you know, I used to kill guys like you. <laughs> Maybe I still would. Boom! You know, and the, ah, guys are running away. You know, they got this, this feeling like, Paul, this guy that they know, he's so much bigger than that. He, but he reminds them. He reminds them of what he was like. But then he's, he's not boasting of how he's changed. He understands what caused his transformation. Look just a couple verses back in verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Here's where we're different from Paul, okay? Most of us, if we're Christians, and especially if we haven't been Christians all our life, but if we have, I, I know a lot of us in this room have stories that are pretty dark before we found Christ. Maybe we have a story of we weren't, we're not proud of who we were, or we had a habit that we didn't like, or a sin pattern that was in our lives, or there was something different about our lives, and we don't like to think about that anymore. We don't like to talk about that with people. Maybe we were ashamed of who we used to be. Maybe we think it takes away credibility, like if they knew who I really used to be, they're not going to believe who I've become, but we shouldn't run from our past, okay? It can't define you. It shouldn't define you, but you can use your past to help people. Because in your past, the way you looked in your past is the way that somebody in your life looks today. And if they can see how God has brought you from here to here, it gives them hope. In fact, I, I want to say it this way. You can write this down if you want. Your past is someone else's present. What you used to look like in the past 
that's somebody else's presence. Somebody else that you know, somebody in this room probably has that same issue, has that same problem, has that same look. That's who they are. And God can use your story to give them hope for their future. And that's what we see with Paul. We see Paul not being ashamed of his past, not being ashamed to tell people how he struggles with sin. He writes in one letter, he says, what I want to do, I do not do, and the things I I don't want to do, I do. What a wretch I am. You know, Paul's not afraid to talk about that stuff, but we're afraid to talk about that stuff. Now, what does this mean that your past is someone else's present and God can use that to give them hope for a future? Well, here's what it means. Transformation, the act of changing, is a long process. It's a long process. In fact, it's a lifelong process. God uh, uses the Holy Spirit, he uses our obedience, he uses his word, he uses life circumstances and other people to transform us. And and that's a process that happens over time. It it happens over time. It doesn't happen all at once. In fact, we will never be perfect. We will never be perfect this side of heaven. Someday, by God's grace, we'll all be perfect. But not now. It's a process called sanctification. God is making us holy. God is renewing us. He's making us... uh, new day by day and because it's slow we don't always recognize it's happening it's like if you've ever tried to lose weight and if you do it in a healthy way you're losing a half pound or a pound a week and every day when you get out of the shower you look in the mirror and you go nope haven't changed nope haven't changed nope haven't changed but then somewhere down the line you see somebody who hasn't seen you in six months and they look at you and they go man you have lost a ton of weight and you're like Thank you, I think. So I weighed a ton before, and now I don't weigh a ton anymore, whatever that means. Um, but, but people who are outside of us can sometimes see the change better than we can see because it's a slow process, and we don't always recognize it. But little by little, if we're following Jesus, we're being conformed in his image. And what the Lord has done in us can be an encouragement to someone else. Right? Now, there's one other reason we don't like sharing our faith I mean, sometimes we're ashamed of it. Sometimes we're afraid that people won't believe us. But, but um, I think for a lot of us, it's that we don't feel worthy of being held up as an example. Like, I, I don't want to show how I used to be and say, well, look at me now because I don't feel like I'm all that now. And so I don't want to be held up as an example. And, and you're right. You, you shouldn't be an example. I shouldn't be an example. We, we shouldn't ever point to ourselves as an example. Paul says it this way in Galatians 6, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, look, uh, it's important that you tell people who you were and who you are now, but don't take credit for that because you didn't do it. God did it. Don't boast in the way that you've changed, but if you're going to boast about something, boast in the way that God has changed you. But this transformation story is so important. Here's why. There... um, Your testimony is not just what happened when you found Christ. Like if you're a Christian, there's probably a moment or maybe a series of moments where you realize that God was leading you in some direction. And you may tell that as your testimony, but your testimony didn't start there. It started way before there and it didn't end there. Your testimony is still happening. Like what's happening to you now, what the Lord has done in your life is part of your testimony. And that story is really important, even if you're not perfect, which you're not. But even if you're not perfect, that story is important because broken people who have been saved are the best evidence of God's grace. I'm a broken person. You're a broken person. But by the grace of God, I've been saved. And if if God can change Paul, 
he can change you. If he can change Paul, he can change me. And Paul was a murderer. He was a persecutor of Christians. And if you think that, oh, God can change Paul, but he can't change me, you are denying God's goodness. You are denying God's grace in your life. Don't you dare deny God's grace in your life. I know you're not perfect. I know you're not done. I know God's still working on you. He's still working on me. But please don't discount how far God has brought you. You may still have a long way to go, but by God's grace, you've come a long way, baby. And you need to be able to look at that and say, yes, God has been good to me so far. You know, whatever, I I love how Dr. Henry Cloud says this, uh, author Dr. Henry Cloud wrote a book called Boundaries. He says this, he says, whatever is happening today is only one scene in a long movie. Don't treat it like it's the whole story. Keep writing the story. And here's what I want to leave you with today. It's something that Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians. But he could have just as easily written it when he was, he was lying on the ground blind, not knowing what his next step was. He's on the road to Damascus and he's lying there. He could have written this just as easily then. He could have written it just as easily when he was, when he was shipwrecked and not sure uh, what, what was going to happen as a result of that. He could have just as easily written it while he was being flogged you know, when he got the 39 lashes. He could have just as easily written it when he was hungry or thirsty or cold or naked. And it's something that you can just imagine that Paul wrote for you. Like if you're disappointed in how far you've come, if you can't always see how God's working in your life, if you always seem to take two steps forward and then take one step back and it's just frustrating to you, here's what I feel like God wants to say to you through the Apostle Paul. Philippians 1.6, he says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you've ever had an encounter with Jesus, if you've made him the savior of your life or not, if you've ever been in a place where you say, I could feel God there, God has begun a good work in you. And Paul says that he is confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When you have confidence that you're changing, you're not confident in you. You're not confident in your own abilities. You're confident in God. He does the work of sanctification. He's the one that's transforming us. We just need to move aside. We just got to get our flesh out of the way, get our our desires out of the way, and let him work. And then we can be confident that God, who began a good work in us, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So I want to pray for you as we close uh, the message today. And, uh, um, and I want to pray from Scripture. I want to pray from Ephesians 1 for all of us in this room. And as I do that, I, I, want to, I just want to tell you that sometimes, you know, we pray just out of habit. Sometimes we pray because it's a good transition from message to music. Sometimes we pray for all kinds of reasons. But, but sometimes we need to pray like we're expectant. Like, I want to pray... Like that God, there is a God in heaven who is full of grace and mercy and he is listening to what we have to say. And that because we pray this prayer, he's going to change something in our lives. I want to pray like if we don't pray this prayer, life is going to go one way. But because we prayed this prayer, something's going to happen that's going to take us another way. So with that in mind, would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray together. God, I am so thankful for your word, and I'm thankful for the stories of men like Paul, people like Paul, who, who uh, can show us their past, show us their messiness, show us their brokenness, and then show us how you have been faithful to work in their lives, and have that be an encouragement for us that Paul's 
present, or Paul's past is our present. Some of us are so broken and we're so, we're chasing all the wrong things. And maybe we think we're even doing it for you, but God, we know that you've got work you wanna do in us. And so Lord, I just wanna pray from Ephesians 1. I just pray to you, the glorious Father, that you may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious grace, your glorious inheritance and your holy people and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Lord, that power is the same as the mighty strength that you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms. God, I just pray that we would know that today, that we would understand better how you wanna work in our lives and that you uh, are faithful to complete the work you've already begun in us. God, as we come to you in worship, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus.